Thank you, Steve. Beautiful song, and I thank Jenny for singing earlier as well, and our readers. It's just a wonderful service, and I appreciate all of you and uh, coming out this evening to help us celebrate Jesus' Advent, Jesus' coming. I want to get into talking about here for just a moment, Three Kings in the Providence of God. That's my title. That's my theme, Three Kings in the Providence of God. I wonder, do any of you like games of strategy? Anybody raise hands? Lisa does. I see a few other hands. Games of strategy. Any of you like games? Uh, any of you like, I know Megan likes Risk. I won't play it with her. That or Settlers of Catan. So not that type of strategy game. But any of you like to play chess? Any chess players out here? So I like to play chess. My dad taught me to play chess when I was in elementary school. Or Actually, I should correct that. Uh, my dad taught my older brother to play chess, and my older brother taught me to play chess when I was in elementary school. I like chess. It's a game of strategy. I, I enjoy it a lot. Well, there's a painting, and the painting is called The Chess Player. The Chess Player. And I read about... Uh, the, the world champion chess player, the world's champion chess player. His name is Paul Morphy, M-O-R-P-H-Y, Paul Morphy. And he was invited by a friend to look at the valuable painting titled The Chess Player. Now, now can't you, I, I can just imagine if you're the greatest chess player in the world and you go to see a painting titled The Chess Player, you're probably looking at that painting a little bit differently than, than, than I might look at it, right? Well, this painting titled The Chess Player is a painting in which Satan was represented as playing chess with a young man, the stake being the young man's soul. So this young man is playing chess versus the devil versus Satan gambling over his soul. Now, when I read that and think about that, I think of that Charlie Daniels song, and some of you might be thinking about it too, but this is different. This is the painting, the chess player. It's not the devil went down to Georgia, okay? And so painting the chess player, and this young man is playing the devil in a game of chess, in a game of strategy, gambling for his soul. And the game had reached a stage where it was a young man's move, but he was checkmated. There was no move he could make, which could not mean defeat for him. And so the strong feature of the picture, the strong feature of the painting was the look of utter despair on the young man's face as he realized that his soul was lost. His soul was lost gambling, playing against Satan in a game of chess. But the point of what I'm telling you today is that this world champion chess player, Paul Morphy, who knew more about chess than the artist, went to visit the painting and he studied the picture for a time. Then he called for a chessboard and he called for pieces and he got out his chessboard and he got out his pieces and he laid them all out in the same arrangement that was in the painting. And he said, I'll take the young man's place and make the move. Then he made the move, which would have set the young man free. Isn't that awesome? Here, the world champion chess player knew more about chess than the guy who painted the painting, and he found the move. The young man wasn't in checkmate at all. It's a, power, it's a powerful illustration about God's love and also God's providence, because 
I want to connect that with the Advent theme, with, uh, with Christmas, with the Christmas story, with, with the incarnation, with Jesus becoming a human being, God in the flesh. Jesus has always been God, eternally existent, outside of time, and God is the ultimate chess player. God is the ultimate chess player. Do you realize the angels could not figure out how God was going to save humanity? It's in 1 Peter. The devil could not figure out how God was going to save humanity. They thought, the devil thought, and his minions and the demons thought they had won, but they hadn't. God had a plan. God had a plan. And the plan was the incarnation, which means God becoming a human being, God being born of a virgin, Jesus. Do you believe in coincidence? I do not believe in coincidence. I believe in the providence of God. God is sovereign. This means that he has total control. Further, God uses his control to arrange the things he wants to carry out his plan. So God is sovereign. He has total control. And then God's providence is God working behind the scenes to orchestrate his plan. How many of you, I think we would all agree with this, have been in places at certain times and we walk away and think, that was not a coincidence. God had me there for such a time as this. That's God's providence. God bringing about the things that he needs to do to carry out his plan. Now, somehow God can bring together our free will with his sovereign will and his plan. Further, God can bring together our free will with his plan perfectly. That's, that's called an antinomy. An antinomy. An antinomy is an apparent contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's just apparent. It means that God is a paradox. God can bring together our free will with his sovereign plan. So I want to look at that with Luke chapter 2. The providence of God in Jesus' birth. The providence of God in Jesus' birth. Cody did a fabulous job reading that a few moments ago. But I'm just so it's fresh in our mind. I'm going to read a few verses as I talk about them. In Luke 2, 1 through 7, we see the birth of Jesus. Read verses 1 through 2 with me. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So stop right there for a moment. This is a decree going out by Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the emperor of the entire known world, the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world. And he wants to have a census go out and a census take place of all the known world, which would include Israel and Egypt and the Middle East and up in different areas, going over to Italy and probably Spain and different areas. Now, isn't this interesting? A census is happening right then. Coincidence? No. It was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Way back in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, it was prophesied that the Messiah, which means anointed one, which is Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, would be born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied hundreds of years before Christ. And I'm wondering if Mary and Joseph, just taking a guess here, if Mary and Joseph, you know, the angel came before Mary, the angel came to Joseph, they knew she was pregnant with the Messiah, they knew these types of things. I wonder if they looked at that prophecy and thought, but I'm supposed to give birth to this baby in Bethlehem. And I'm in Nazareth. Mary was in Nazareth. How is God going to make it that they had to travel to Bethlehem? Not a big deal. God worked it out. R.C. Sproul, the Bible teacher writer, has called this passage, Luke 2, three kings. Three kings. We have God the Father, 
we have Jesus, and we have Caesar. We have God the Father, we have Jesus, and we have Caesar. Caesar orders a census, but in reality, God's in control. God was in control. Look at verse 3. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So everyone is traveling. Everyone is traveling. And this was all God's providence. This was all God's plan. Look at verses 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee, because they're in Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. That's the city they're in. Galilee is kind of the broader area. And they go to Judea. Judea is the broader area around Bethlehem and Jerusalem, that area. So Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. And what did he go there for? In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So they go. They're in Nazareth. Bethlehem was the location where the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, was to be born. God, ordered, God has Caesar order a decree, and they go to register. As a consequence of the census, Joseph and Mary must travel to Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph are engaged to be married at this point. We know from Luke 1 and Matthew chapter 1 that Mary is already pregnant with Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. She's already pregnant. They, they go and look at verses 6 and 7. While they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her four, firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for them in the inn, which would be best translated guest room. Here they are in Bethlehem. The baby is born. Do you think they knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem? Again, I referenced this a few moments ago. I think Mary likely knew the prophecies. They also knew nine months. Think about it. A year ago, Mary and Joseph knew nothing of this. A year before this, they knew nothing of this. And now a year passed, nine months to be exact, certainly, since the angel Gabriel came, came to her and the angel came to Matthew in a dream. She knew biology. She knew how things worked about nine months. The baby used to be born. And then Caesar orders this census. They travel in the providence of God. The birth of Jesus fulfills the prophecy by the location. Here is Mary, obviously pregnant. And in God's sovereign plan, in his providence, he brings Mary and Joseph to the right location for birth. Three kings, God the Father, Caesar, and now Jesus. Jesus is born in basically a barn and laid in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the inn, in the guest room. Jesus came in humility. God is in charge. This is how God wanted the Messiah, which means anointed one, Jesus, to enter the world. I like what John Piper shares. He says, you would think that if God so rules the world as to use an empire-wide census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, he surely could have seen to it that a room was available in the end. Right? And God rules the whole world. God orchestrated the fulfillment of this prophecy. He could have made sure there would be a room available. Yes, he could have. He absolutely could have. And Jesus could have been born into a wealthy family. He, he also could have turned stone into bread in the wilderness. He could have called 10,000 angels to his aid in Gethsemane. He could, have, he could have come down from the cross and saved himself. The question is not what God could do, but what he willed to do. 
And this is how he willed to enter our world. God's will was that through Christ, uh, God's will was that though Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The no vacancy signs over the motels in Bethlehem were for your sake. For your sake he became poor. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. God rules all things, even hotel capacities and uh, available Airbnbs for the sake of his children. The Calvary Road begins with a no vacancy sign in Bethlehem. And get this, it ends with the spitting and scoffing of the cross in Jerusalem, which is why we decided to leave the cross up here from the song they sang on Sunday. Piper continues, and we must not forget that he said, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Luke 9, 23. We join Jesus on the Calvary road to hear him say, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 20. To the one who calls out enthusiastically, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus responds, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke 9, 57 through 58. Yes, God could have seen to it that Jesus heavy room at his birth. But that would have been a detour off the Calvary Road. Jesus came in total humility. Total humility from his birth. Total humility from his conception, really. Jesus came for you, for me, for us. God is the master chess player. God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. God is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. And God is omnipresent, which means he's present everywhere, even outside of time. Everything is present to God. He is the master chess player. And he wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with all of us. In a nutshell, Christmas is all about Jesus' birth, God becoming a human being. And why did he become a human being? To live amongst us and be an example, yes, but so much more than that. He lived the perfect life, the sinless life, to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. He fulfilled all these prophecies. His birth in Bethlehem is, is, is just one of them. The virgin birth is another one. He lived a life fulfilling all the prophecies of the Jewish Messiah, coming of the line of David, being King of kings and Lord of lords. And let me ask you, do you know him? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I'm not asking if you said a one-time prayer of salvation. I'm not asking if you said the sinner's prayer because you heard someone say it to you at vacation Bible school, though that's wonderful. I'm asking you if you have a relationship with him. God calls us not to be fans of Jesus on the sidelines. Not to sin and repent and sin and repent and sin and repent and sin and repent. God calls us to make him Lord of our life. To organize our affairs around him, as some have said. In John 15, 
Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. That means we have the Holy Spirit within us as Christians and we live with him in a relationship with him. In John 15, 4, Jesus says, abide in me. That is to say, remain in me. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you know him? Some of you have heard me share this before, but I like the gospel acronym. This summarizes the gospel and really summarizes the whole narrative of the Bible, the whole meta-narrative, as it's called, of the Bible. God created us to be with him. Genesis chapters one and two, God created us to be in a relationship with him. Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden. They had a relationship with God, but our sins, they separate us from God. Our sins, they separate us from God. Genesis three. Oftentimes, we don't think our sins are that bad. And that's because we're comparing ourselves with others. Anybody who's had more than one child knows how they can compare and fight and say, oh, I'm better than she is. No, we're not to compare ourselves with our siblings or our neighbors or our coworkers. We need God's standard. And God's standard is perfection, holiness, righteousness, and one sin separates us from him. Our sins separate us from God. Sins cannot be removed by good works. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Genesis 4 through Malachi 4. God does remember our good works, but we still have the sin to take care of. And that creates a dilemma because God loves us and wants a relationship with us. So in the providence of God, God took action. Paying the price for our sin, Jesus died and rose again. He went to the cross. He took the wrath of God in your place, my place, the world's place. He took our hell. Jesus could do that because he was and is God in the flesh. Only someone fully God could withstand all the hell of the whole world. And also he lived a sinless life. And he had to be human to take the punishment that we deserved. Everyone who trusts in Jesus alone has eternal life. John through Jude, the rest of the New Testament. And life that's eternal means being with Jesus forever. Revelation 22.5. So do you know him? What does it mean? To know him. I always say, confess, believe, trust, commit. Confess you are a sinner in need of a savior. That does require repenting. Believe in Jesus as a one and only savior. Believe he died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Trust him and commit to him. Confess, believe, trust, commit. Let's bow our heads. Close your eyes, please, in a state of prayer. If that's you and you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't know if I know him. I'm gonna invite you to say a prayer with me. The prayer is not magic, it's not a formula. What matters is what's in your heart. The prayer is simply telling Jesus what you're doing. I invite you to say a prayer with me, committing your life to him. Some of you have have strayed from Christ. I invite you to say this prayer, rededicating your life to him. Some of you might have been a believer in Jesus, but you're not really making him Lord of your life. We're called to make him Lord of of our lives. If that's you, I invite you Say the same prayer here in a moment. Again, I cannot emphasize enough, the prayer is not a magical formula. What's, what, what, what's, what matters is what you're telling Jesus. You're telling him what's in your heart. You're committing your life to him as Lord and Savior. So if that's you, pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today, Lord, I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Today, Lord, I'm committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. If you said that prayer, please share it with someone today. You know that angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. 
And so should we. It's, it's celebratory. And that's how much God wants a relationship with all of us. Uh, before we uh, move on to Silent Night and Joy to the World, I always want to share, if you have questions about God or the spiritual life, never hesitate to give me a call. Even if you're antagonistic to the Christian faith, even if you're atheist, agnostic, deist, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, uh, I don't care. If you have questions about Christianity, I would love to talk to you and help you explore them. I'm not going to try to force you to commit to Jesus until you're ready. It has to be your decision, uh, compelled and convicted by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not about me manipulating. I would just love to have a conversation with you. If you're a Christian who has doubts, I would love to talk to you. Never hesitate to give me a call. At this point, I'm going to invite our candle lighters. I recruited some people to help me light the candles to come up. And as they come up, I'll invite the praise team to come back up. And we're going to sing Silent Night. If you want to stand, if you're able... And, uh, well, actually, stay seated. I don't know. I guess we'll let you, st- uh, yeah, stand. <laughs> I had to think on the spot. Elaine's going to play a melody through first while we light the candles. And after that, uh, we'll sing Silent Night and Joy to the World. When you light the candle, tip the unlit candle over, not the lit candle, so we don't burn down the building. Okay.
Jesus. Amen.